to call those who were invited to the marriage feast. But they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, Behold, I have made ready my dinner, my oxen and my fat cows are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the marriage feast. But they made light of it and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops, and destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the thoroughfares, and invite to the marriage feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the streets, and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. There men will weep and gnash their teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Glory to
Peace be to you who read the good tidings and to all the people. And to your spirit. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I think it was a few weeks ago, I can't remember how many, when we had another parable that the Lord compared the kingdom to, and I mentioned at that time that the Lord uses things that are familiar to us in order to express the character of His kingdom, which is not unlike the character that He Himself expresses eternally to us. And so when we see this parable this morning, comparing the kingdom to a marriage feast, I had to bring out one more time, because we don't usually see this until Great Lent, the icon of the bridegroom. Now I was at a wedding last night, and I promise you this is not how the bridegroom looked. Inside, it's how every bridegroom should look towards their bride. Notice that he's not wearing a tuxedo. He doesn't have a smile on his face. And there are lots of other things different about him than you would see in a normal bridegroom. But I want you to keep in mind that God is waiting to throw this huge party on that last day. And you are all invited. You will all be invited as guests, as much as the bride is the guest at her own wedding. And it's interesting that the fathers of the church, they say that God wants to unite His Son, the Bridegroom, to every single soul that He has ever created. He wants every single soul to be an integral member of the body of Christ and be wedded to His Son, who is the perfect lover. And that's what this icon shows. It shows a picture of the perfect lover in the act of loving the whole world even unto His death, a death on the cross. And so, if we don't take anything else away from today's sermon, let's remember that God loves us. So much so, that He willingly, being God, emptied Himself, taking the form of the lowest, humblest servant and undergoing willingly the most 
horrendous death that the world could offer at the time. Not only horrendous in its pain and its duration of suffering, but horrendous in the fact that it was the most public, humiliating way to die that the Roman Empire could construct. So I don't want you to just think about the pain of crucifixion when you think about how much God loves us. But I want you to also think about the fact that Jesus Christ was God. He was the Creator. That He thought of each one of us when He was utterly rejected by the world. The world that He created and loved perfectly. This is probably more painful to God than the human pain that He endured on the cross. But I don't want you to just think of the negative. I want you to think of the positive. That there is a banquet that is going to be so full of joy. When you go to a wedding, everyone's smiling. Everyone is happy. I hope, uh, I hope that's true. There is so much hope at a wedding because there is so much promise and potential. It is an experience that everybody goes away filled with uh, a good feeling. As Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is describing through the words of Jesus' parable this story that we're to understand the kingdom of heaven by. In some ways, it's a history of the love relationship between God and all of mankind. It says that when the king, through this marriage feast, he sent and called everybody to it. And he sent servants with invitations The first servant that is meant by this is Moses when he went to the Hebrew people. And he took them out of Egypt, out of 400 years of slavery, and he took them to the promised land. But they, all along the way, were stubbornly rejecting this invitation on the part of God to enter into this love relationship with him. They were, in a way, opposing Him at every turn. But God did not quit. He then sent the prophets to the same descendants of those people. And the prophets, again, rejected the invitation, not the prophets, the people, the Jews, the Hebrew people, rejected the invitation. And they killed some of the prophets, and they severely mistreated others. All you need to think about is Isaiah, the prophet, who was sawn in two, and Jeremiah, the prophet, who was thrown in a pit of mire, tortured horribly in that event. But God did not quit. He did not stop at this rejection. There were those that he invited that wanted to turn to the land that they owned. And others that turned to the businesses that they ran. And the fathers of the church, Chrysostom, Theophila, and others, 
say that the land symbolizes the body, which shows that these people were using the love of the pleasure of their flesh as an excuse for not loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the business, the fathers say, is the, the passion of greed, of ambition, of the love of power and the love of money. And this, too, is an obstacle to being able to accept the invitation of God to be the bride of His Son. So what did God do? He still did not quit in His love for mankind. This is a historical image of Christ in His utter humility. Who would be rejected so often and still not quit in His quest to wed His bride? And so He sent servants out into the highways and the byways and the hedges because now He turns to the Gentiles. He says, if my people that I came to first will not accept the invitation, then I will go out to those who are really far away and living in darkness. He says to the good and to the evil. Because there were some who, even though they were living in darkness, were still living a life according to their conscience. But there were others that he called who were part of the highways and the byways and the hedges, who were in utter darkness, even those he called to come to the marriage feast. And they did, until the banquet hall was filled. And then when all was ready, the king himself, at the end, enters into the marriage banquet, And he sees somebody who is not properly attired for the feast. Who is not wearing a wedding garment. And he has that servant bound hand and foot. And cast out of the banquet hall. And into the darkness. And then he turned to the people who were listening to this parable. And he said, many are called, but few are chosen. And all of the fathers of the church, without exception, interpret that to mean that all are called, but not all choose to accept. St. Paul teaches that it is God's will that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But to be a bride requires free will. No one should question the perfect love of God. Nor should anyone question the perfect and divine justice of God. But we should all look into our own hearts and examine our lives to see if we are choosing, if indeed we are wearing a wedding garment. Because in order to go into the marriage feast and to be acceptable requires preparation. This is what the fathers say is symbolized by the wedding garment. 
that you have to act and to think and to have a disposition that is, in fact, loving God back. I'll read to you what St. Gregory the Theologist, who was a Pope of Rome before the Western Church ended in schism. We actually credit St. Gregory the, the Theologist for the pre-sanctified liturgy that we, that we celebrate during Great Lent. He says that the wedding garment symbolizes the virtue of love. And that love is the pinnacle, the highest of all of the virtues. So in fact, this wedding garment is adornment of virtues on the person's soul. And he says that just like garments that are woven on a loom are woven between two beams, one above and one below. And then the threads are woven across the loom on these two beams. He says that the wedding garment that the Lord is talking about here is also woven on two beams. The top beam is love of God, and the lower beam is love of one's neighbor. And he says this about love of neighbor. He says, Let no one, when he loves someone, think to himself that he now begins to possess charity until he first examines the motive of his love. For if one loves another but does not love him for God's sake, he has not charity but only thinks he has. But when we love our friend in God and our enemy because of God, this is true charity. I'll repeat that line. But when we love our friend in God and our enemy because of God, this is true charity. He loves for God's sake those whom he knows do not love him. When it comes to love of enemies, charity is proved true by means of the absence of hate. And so because of this, the Lord himself says to us, Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. He who then, for the sake of God, loves those who do not love him back, proves his love to be true. He who then, for the sake of God, loves those who do not love him back, proves his love to be true. These are great precepts, says St. Gregory. They're sublime precepts and are many and are to many hard to fulfill. Nevertheless, this is the wedding garment. And whoever sits down at the wedding feast without it, let him watch with fear. For when the king comes in, he shall be cast forth. Unquote. So my dear brothers and sisters, if the wedding garment, which by the way, this undergarment of the priest's vestments that the deacon also wears and that the bishop also wears is the symbol of the wedding garment because it symbolizes the baptismal garment of all believers. And when somebody newly illumined is baptized, they wear a white garment symbolizing that they have been forgiven and cleansed and washed 
and given all of the tools to then live the Christian life. And so the baptismal garment is closely connected to the wedding garment that the Lord talks about. And it presupposes that one is growing and actualizing their baptism so that they are slowly but surely by the obedience to Christ's commandments adorning their soul by His grace with every virtue leading up to the highest virtue which is love. And the fathers of the church say that this ultimate marriage banquet that the kingdom is compared to is participated every single time by us through the divine liturgy. The divine liturgy is the closest realization that we have in this life to the wedding banquet that awaits us at the end of this life. And so how we prepare ourselves and how we participate and how we fulfill this marriage banquet in time and space determines a lot about how we're preparing for the ultimate marriage banquet. And so the last part of my homily, I want to address some aspects of preparation. How do we and why do we come to the Divine Liturgy? Do we come for the right reasons? There are some, to be sure, who come in order for the social aspects. There are some who come in order to fulfill a duty or an obligation so that they don't feel guilty or to be seen by others. But do we come for the reason which the liturgy is offered? To unite ourselves to Christ through the Eucharist and thereby unite ourselves through Christ to one another. There is one bread and there is one body. And though we are each individual members of a great community, we become one by partaking of the one bread. But how do we come? Do we come as spiritually prepared as we can? Do we come with prayer and fasting? Do we see the totality of our life as a seamless preparation for our coming to the chalice and uniting ourselves to the bridegroom as his bride? There's no more intimate act than coming together with one's spouse in marriage. And there is no more intimate act in the church than coming together with our spouse through the divine Eucharist. But the Eucharist, says St. Paul, can be unto our salvation or it can be unto our spiritual illness depending on the degree of preparation that we undergo before we approach the chalice. So those of us who are married, do we see our marriages as a seamless preparation for the ultimate marriage, our union with Christ? How do we treat our spouses? Are we faithful to them with our eyes, in our mind, and in our actions? How are we in the context of our families? And all of us come from families. We're either parents or we're children. Do we see the interaction in the intimacy of family as a seamless preparation 
for our participation in the wedding banquet? Is it helping to keep our wedding garment unsoiled and white? How much time in our life do we spend at work? How much of our energy and our talents do we devote to these companies and these activities that we do? But do we see that time and do we see that effort and do we make that struggle a seamless preparation to approach the challenge with the love of God, the fear of God, with faith and drawing near to this union of the bridegroom and the bride? Do we participate in the rest of the sacramental life on a regular basis? How many of you regularly approach the chalice but do not go to confession? Do we not fear God? No one is going to make you. Many are called, but few choose. You have to choose. All the things that God calls us to do that adorn our soul with virtue are acts of freedom. The one of the most important things besides knowing that God loves you that you walk away from this sermon with, I hope, is that it is the use of your own free will that will determine whether you are fit for the kingdom of heaven. What do I mean by fit for the kingdom of heaven? God has created us in such a way that we do not belong in the kingdom of heaven literally, ontologically, by our very existence if we don't choose it. We must choose to love God in order to be able to survive in the kingdom. I can't survive long underwater because I wasn't created to live underwater. I have lungs, not gills. So maybe two minutes max, and I have to come up for air. The same is true for the kingdom of heaven. If I do not use my free will, it's not God who doesn't desire that I be with Him. It's I who make myself unfit for that spiritual environment. Because only the love of God and the love of neighbor allows me to be able to be there. And that can only happen in this life. One of the reasons why the man who was found unfit for the kingdom because he was not wearing a wedding garment was bound hand and foot and cast out. The fathers of the church say he was bound because repentance cannot take place after death. If we do not present to God a wedding garment through this life, we will not be able to change it after we breathe our last. This is our time. This is our life. This is the supreme gift that God has made us stewards over. And so we need to choose to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the upper beam. And we need to choose to love our neighbor, even our enemy, for the sake of God, for their sake, and for the sake of our salvation, which is the lower being. And the history that God has shown us through this parable shows that if we do not repent, then we, by our own choice, will make ourselves unfit for the kingdom, and God will say, Be gone, I never knew you, because you did not choose me 
by the way that you prepared yourself, even though you may have been in the church. For we know that in the same field there will be wheat and there will be weeds, and that God will not separate the wheat from the tear until the end, lest He damage the good crop in the process. And so we need to examine our hearts. We need to examine our garment and make sure it is fit for the wedding banquet. Because every event in life requires proper preparation. And if you were to go and meet the president, you wouldn't go in blue jeans or shorts. But you would put on your finest and you would be on your best behavior. And you would be respectable. How much more so for God, the God of the universe, who loves you so much that He had you personally in mind when He willingly ascended the cross. He had you personally in mind as He was on that cross taking care of His mother. He had you personally in mind, and I mean personally, each one of you by name, knowing the totality of your life, when He said, It is finished. So every moment of your life, I want you to have Him personally in mind. He is your perfect lover. If you get married and you have a spouse, that mystery is given to us as a gift that we might understand this greater mystery. The ultimate marriage between Christ the Bridegroom and each of us as His Bride. So let us all be good brides, preparing ourselves for the bridal chamber through every single facet of our life, each moment of every day. Let us be good lovers by dwelling here in the mind and here in the heart on the object of our love, Christ the Bridegroom, the ultimate lover. So that when we enter the bridegroom, we will be found with the proper wedding garments. And he will say, come, enter my faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Now I will make you an heir of my entire kingdom forever and ever and ever. And remember that at every wedding, there are only smiles. There's only hope. There's only good feelings. Every desire and yearning and need that you have as a human being will be fulfilled in the kingdom of heaven because you will be united to the perfect husband, the perfect lover who loves you with everything that he has. So love him back with everything that you have. Amen.